Hey, everybody, I want to welcome you again to the Before You Quit podcast, where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard. And man, does it get hard sometimes. That is why we do what we do on these podcasts. My name is Mitch Schultz. I'm your host. I'm also the director of a ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. And uh, I'll add that I'd love for you to check out that uh, ministry, what we do. It, uh, it's a ministry that provides support and encouragement, counseling, coaching to people in ministry. So I'd love for you to check us out and recommend us perhaps to uh, your ministry leaders. All right, let me jump in into what we're going to do today. It's, uh, it's not often that I have the opportunity to talk so openly with someone who is suffering a terminal illness and, um, and, and someone who's willing to, to be asked any question about it, and, and that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, but I think as a church, we, we, we all agree uh, that um, in, in church and even in, in culture, we are ill-prepared to have hard and honest conversations about death and dying. And uh, what I want to do in this podcast, in fact, my goal is to help the church, help you, the believer, the one who loves the church, loves Jesus, uh, to grow in your ministry capacity to help those who are grieving and uh, even help those who themselves are facing terminal illness. Uh, maybe you've had someone in your family recently and or you yourself are, are facing something like this. Uh, so I hope this conversation that I'm going to have is going to be instructional and also beneficial, encouraging, and challenging. So I am uh, so thankful to Pastor Scott Borderud for his willingness to have this kind of conversation with me. He's a guy who is facing terminal cancer himself. Uh, he was my pastor for about a year before he moved on to Texas to be district superintendent a couple years ago. We became good friends, have maintained connection and it was uh, just great to um, find him to be very honest. Uh, sometimes our conversation was was rather somber, uh, but we were both left encouraged and and renewed as we saw how our faith in Christ is just so real and gives us the capacity to handle all, all sorts of challenges in life and especially uh, terminal illness. Uh, Scott uh, served as a military chaplain and a pastor for a number of decades. He's married to Carol, and they have three children, Joshua, Christy, and Catherine, and they're also blessed with, I think, five grandchildren. So let's go ahead and jump into that interview now. All right. Well, it's a privilege to have a good friend of mine, Scott uh, Borderud. I believe I pronounced that correctly, right? That probably gets tortured a lot. Uh, yes, it does. Only yeah. the Norwegians and Swedes know how to pronounce it. Yeah, uh, excellent. In, fact, uh, in Minnesota, they would say, how are you doing, Mr. Borderud? So. <laughs> well, well, we'll just call you Scott. Pastor Scott, Dr. Scott. Uh, well, this is, uh, we're going to be speaking specifically today. This is a very, very real uh, kind of raw topic on terminal illness, because this is what you are experiencing. And as you and I talked uh, on the phone last week, it, it's probably, particularly in our culture, we, we don't talk easily about it. And I don't, I don't know if we provide the context uh, to, to do so either. And, you know, podcasts like this, I think is a great way to do that. But briefly, before we jump in, tell us a little bit about yourself and what I, I like to ask those I interview. I, I always love to ask what drives you, uh, what matters to you, and, and maybe in the context what we're going to talk about, uh, what matters to you, know, to you more now than it did perhaps when you first started ministry. But uh, yeah, introduce yourself to, uh, as I say, my two listeners. Sure. Uh, there might be three today because the last last one was really popular. So I think we increased the uh, the bandwidth here. <laughs> uh, I was born in Fargo, North Dakota in 1950, raised there for just a couple of years before my father received a promotion uh, in his company, or should I say got hired by American District Telegraph in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And we lived there. Uh, until 1962, and he was promoted to their New York City office, and we settled in Stamford, Connecticut, which is uh, in that little uh, sort of uh, panhandle at the bottom uh, left of Connecticut. Okay. It juts into Westchester County, New York, 
and uh, went to junior high and high school there, played football, wrestled, did a little, little bit of track and uh, received a nomination to the Naval Academy uh, where I attended uh, from 1968 to 72 and uh, received my degree and uh, commissioned in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps for uh, six years and two months, 1972 to 78, was an infantry officer. And when I got out in 78, it was specifically because uh, I felt God was leading me into vocational Christian work. And so we got involved uh, first with the navigators and with the local Christian and Missionary Alliance Church in East Brunswick, New Jersey. And after three years involvement there, we went off to Alliance Theological Seminary in Nyack, New York, mm -hmm. where I received my Master of Divinity in 1984. We pastored a church in Union, New Jersey, and pastored uh, as an associate pastor in a larger Alliance Church in Butler, Pennsylvania. Okay. Alliance Church. Uh, in 1988, shortly after I was ordained, uh, I received a phone call from uh, the head of our military chaplaincy ministry in the Alliance, asking if Carol and I would consider uh, going on active duty. And uh, we prayed about it, and uh, he arranged the paperwork uh, first for the Navy, but the Navy uh, said no room at the inn. So they shifted my paperwork to the Army, and the Army uh, accepted me for appointment as an active duty chaplain, went on active duty in the summer of 88, and stayed mm -hmm. on active duty through various assignments up until uh, the fall of uh, 2006. Retired in 2006 from an overseas assignment in the Netherlands and taught at the Army Staff College, taught ethics and leadership for four years there, mm -hmm. and then uh, accepted a call to uh, First Alliance Church in Tacoa, Georgia. Which is where, which is where I met you. You were, you were my pastor for uh, a short season before you, you left. Uh, right. that, that's yeah. where we got to know each other. Yeah, and in um, 2018, the fall of 2018, I was uh, elected to be district superintendent of uh, the late great Southwestern District of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is Texas, Oklahoma, mm -hmm. Arkansas, and Western Louisiana. Uh, upon the day of my stepping down from that position in August 1st of uh, 2020, <clears throat> uh, they joined. Uh, the district that I was superintendent for with uh, churches along the Rio Grande and uh, the eastern half of Louisiana. And all of that became uh, the Alliance South Central. And I then stepped into retirement. Uh, yeah, yeah, you, uh, you you worked yourself uh, obsolete, didn't you? <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, that you went into that knowing that possibility probably, didn't you? Uh, was that, no. Not, not at all, exactly. really. It was not until I was probably uh, four or five months into the job that uh, the word began to circulate at the mm -hmm. upper levels mm -hmm. yeah. that they were going yeah. to merge two districts. And in the merging, they were specifically looking for someone who was bilingual English and Spanish Yeah, because they had about 20 or so churches that would merge with sure. us. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, the, the pastors were bilingual, but the people mm -hmm. in the congregations mostly spoke Spanish. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, as you look back at all that, Scott, what, uh, what, what, how, how would you sum up what has mattered to you the most, and particularly as you face this stage in life with cancer? Uh, how do you reflect back on a on a life of serving Jesus? And uh, sure. you know, well, what's that? What what have you found that at the core is is the, the most important thing to you? Sure. Um, I should say that uh, there's been a shift in my own thinking logically brought about by the diagnosis of my cancer in the spring of 2019. And that is a shift from uh, present and future 
ministry within the Christian and Missionary Alliance. That is, I was working off the assumption in 2018 when I was elected that I would be the district superintendent for at least four years. Mm-hmm. But uh, as as uh, one of my brothers said to me, um, uh, how how can you uh, how can you test God's sense of humor? And the answer mm-hmm. is uh, by making a plan. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 And so my plan was to be here in Texas uh, for eight years uh, or so before stepping down. And uh, that plan, of course, changed. And it, it, of course, is related to my my medical condition. Mm-hmm. That is um, the focus now is how do I end well in mm-hmm. terms of my relationship with Jesus Christ and my relationship with other people? A lot of people ask that, but that's a, it becomes a whole different, um, there, there's a, there's a different kind of weight to that. Isn't there when you're, when you're faced with an illness, I think we all experience that to some extent as we get older. I mean, I'm, I'm asking that now as I'm turning 60 next month. Um, I know that comes to a surprise to people listening to me because I got such a young voice, but, uh, (laughs) kidding. Uh, But yeah, so, um, you 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 had a number of of transitions that would have on their own been hard you know the 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 unexpected uh brevity of a ministry that you thought would be would be longer um uh, but t- yeah go ahead and tell us a little bit about the the you know the story of of finding out you had cancer and uh what I'd like to know what your first reaction was and how your family reacted yeah, uh, Mitch, I didn't catch everything above, but but let me tell you about the diagnosis. Uh, it occurred after I had done some heavy yard work, and uh, the next day I was in severe pain in my uh, shoulder and my collarbone on the right side, and we went to the emergency room, and the guy uh, gave me a painkiller and so forth, but then he took a look at my collarbone, and uh, your listeners are not going to be able to see what you see. Mm-hmm. But let me, get, mm-hmm. let me get the camera down here. What, what Mitch sees is mm. a gigantic lump on my right yeah. collarbone. Mm. And when the doctor looked at that, he said, tell me about this. Mm. Now, it wasn't as big as what Mitch is looking at uh, now, but uh, it was significantly uh, larger than the, uh, the knob on the, or the joint on the left side mm-hmm. of the collarbone. And I told him that I had been, uh, I had a fall near a fire pit at First Alliance Church in Tacoa in uh, the fall of 2017. And uh, the next day I was in pain in that shoulder and we went to Stevens County Hospital. They x-rayed it, said, you don't have any break. Don't worry about it. Just wear a sling for a day or two. Well, that passed, but it became increasingly more difficult for me to do push-ups and other physical exercise that involved uh, expansion of the pectorals and the chest muscles, all that kind of thing. Well, when I, now let's move the clock forward from 2017 to spring of 2019, when I was in the emergency room after doing the heavy outdoor work, and he said, uh, this does not look like an orthopedic injury. This looks like cancer, and I'm going to have you admitted to the, the big Adventist hospital across the street on Interstate 35W. So he admitted me in there. They ran a series of tests, and with something sort of like an ultrasound, they discovered uh, a tumor mass in my liver. Uh, subsequently, they scheduled me for a biopsy. They withdrew some of that mass and uh, sent it off to be analyzed. And it came back uh, with a visit to the oncologist in that same hospital. Mm -hmm. And the oncologist sat Carolyn and me down uh, and uh, we could tell that it was not going to be good news. Mm. And so uh, she usually when the doctor sits down and pulls the chair up, you know, exactly something serious to talk about. She closed the door behind her, et cetera, et cetera. So she said, uh, you have uh, neuroendocrine cancer in your liver. And I said, oh, cut it out. Hmm. 
a meaning, a double meaning there. You know, mm. the first part was, well, just go after it with surgery and remove it. Yeah. And the second, oh, cut it out is, uh, tell me you're, you're not joking. Yeah. Yeah. And, wow. uh, she didn't get any of that. She just, you know, said, no, it's not possible to go mm. in there and do surgery because mm. of the size of it and other things. So when, when you hear that piece right there, what, what's, uh, can you reflect back what your first reaction was emotionally? Uh, and- well, emotionally, it actually did not land hard with me. It did mm-hmm. with Carol. Okay. Because uh, Carol is uh, the eternal optimist. Mm-hmm. Yes, she is. And uh, I come from a family where my mother, uh, one of her sisters, and my grandfather all died of cancer. So I had done a lot of thinking about this from the point at which they found the mass in my liver to the point at which I was getting the news delivered to me by the oncologist. So um, for me, I said, well, you know, what are the next steps? And she said, uh, uh, intravenous chemotherapy. And at that point, I said, open that up for me. And she then described... uh, Week number one, you're in their office for IV uh, chemotherapy fluids going into your body. You spend the next week uh, recovering and dealing with side effects. And then the third week is fairly normal. And then week four, you're back in the, the office for another dose. And this goes, and I said to her, so how long does that go on? And she said, for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And that for me, the, the single most important statement in that conversation. Mm, mm. And I, I then said, uh, I'd like to get a second opinion at MD Anderson, which is the famous cancer center in Houston, Texas. So Carol and I ended up contacting them, getting an appointment. Uh, they went through uh, their own series of tests. And uh, he then uh, recommended that I uh, take oral chemotherapy that is pills, uh, which I did uh, from uh, August of uh, 2019 um, on till uh, probably January, February of 2020. And uh, the doctor uh, whose care I was under in Fort Worth uh, did CAT scans and his news to me was, uh, that's not doing anything for Mm. you. It's not slowing down the growth or or eliminating any tumors. So he shifted me to a really expensive drug that thankfully my health insurance was able to cover most of called Vitrac-V, um, the price of a used sports car every month. Mm. And, uh, mm. So mm. so anyway, uh, that went on for about three months and that was not doing the trick either. Mm. So the oncologist that I was working with in Fort Worth said, um, well, really the only thing we've got left is uh, IV chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. which is back to square one with the gal who informed us of my uh, cancer. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, what I left out in the initial uh, notification by the oncologist uh, here in Burleson was that it was stage four. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's... um... That's got to be the most shocking thing. Um, you, to, to, uh, pause a little bit and describe that moment because uh, you you have uh, four kids, four children, right? Grown children, three. Uh, three. Uh, uh, a son in a son in uh, in Waco, Texas, at Baylor University. Okay. A daughter in Bethel Park, Pennsylvania, and another daughter who lives in Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, to describe briefly what, what that was like to sit down with them and share this. How how do you share that with children and what questions do they ask uh, bring us into that conversation yeah i think that uh in this case there's probably uh less color and texture to that part of the story than than we would want that mm-hmm. is although carol was significantly shocked by this uh in the end uh, and you'd have to know carol uh, she took it very well uh, as well as someone's next of kin could take mm-hmm. sure, um, sure. A, a, a terminal incurable form of cancer that is now in stage four. And Carol is a Navy nurse, a uh, former Navy nurse. And so when, when the doctor says 
stage four, she knows exactly what's going on. And uh, the, you know, the English subtitle on stage four is, this cancer has spread to places that it ordinarily would not go. Mm -hmm. um, is it, it had an origin somewhere in my body and they still don't know what the point of origin was, mm -hmm. but it's gone beyond just one place or mm -hmm. two places near each other that it got into my, uh, the vertebrae of my back. It got into my uh, collarbone and got into uh, other bones uh, in my shoulder and elsewhere. And uh, now it's, uh, I've got a series of, of below the skin tumors that are sprouting up here and there. But to get back to uh, the emotional things, I think uh, I did actually not take it that hard because I had been thinking mm -hmm. and preparing uh, for that very bad news um, mm -hmm. when it came. And, and that's probably something unusual about me is that I, I didn't find it devastating. Mm -hmm. Of course, mm. uh, bad news uh, generally does not land in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. is that we all have some worldview. We all have some view mm -hmm. of our life and, and the framework of living, whether we believe in a God or don't believe in God, whether we're, it's a Christian set of beliefs or a non-Christian set of beliefs. We all have some context that bad news drops into. And in my case, um, and uh, I've, I've, I've been quoted elsewhere, is that these are the, the occasions when a minister has to eat the same soup that he's been feeding other people for mm -hmm. his whole ministry. Mm -hmm. Is that every Sunday I get up and tell people that A, Jesus loves you, uh, B, that he has a wonderful plan for your life, Mm -hmm. uh, see that we will share eternity with him, those of us who place their trust in Jesus Christ, and that now is the time when the pastor has to eat that soup himself, mm -hmm. because yeah. it applies to him uh, at least as much as it does to the people in the pew. Yeah, and, and preaching it to other people, and now is, now is my time to scoop myself out of uh, a, a, a bowl of it and and take all yeah. that in. Yeah. And there, there's a point where that becomes an opportunity. And, and also, uh, and uh, I mean, th this is probably what have, we'd have to spend more time to unpack this, but a, a sense of privilege that comes with this, the opportunity to, to really uh, believe what we believe, to test and to lean on the, the, the stuff we've been preaching to others. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's like the, your, your predecessor, John Harvey at uh, my son's funeral prayed and thanked God for this unwelcome privilege. And that has, uh, that kind of helped to set the trajectory for me to stay true North. And in, in my belief, I mean, there were many other things as well that, that did that, but, uh, but yeah, that's common that the person who uh, is, is receiving the news or it's about himself or herself, they, they seem to embrace it quicker and better than the rest of the family. So, um, and, and, and Mitch, this is precisely in my opinion, what I've been observing myself mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that I have experienced much greater peace than others have. Um, why, why do you think that's the case? Uh, I can't speak for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I can only speak for myself is that, uh, the promises of God uh, are uh, deep and unchanging. And so those are the things that are foremost in my mind. Um, and those are the things that, that keep me serene in a situation that otherwise mm -hmm. uh, might have some level of, uh, of panic or, or shock or anger or other emotions that, that, would come out when people mm -hmm. get cancer. Um, and, and part of that is that I have not had a hard life. If I take a look at the things that God has given me throughout my life, salvation in Jesus Christ, a wonderful family, um, great jobs and ministry and education throughout my life, um, the houses we've lived in, the countries we've lived in, I really have no complaints when it comes to my life. And I'm 70 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, and so 
you know, if I, I can imagine pretty easily that if I had received this news at 25 or 27 or, or 35 or even 50, I would feel differently than I do now. But really part of it is, you know, the edge up I've got in this yeah. situation is that, you know, uh, we've, we've seen our kids through their growing up to be adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have any s- small children left at home that Carol would have to care for um, a- upon my death. So in that sense, I've got it pretty easy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so now we work out a little comparison. What's the better deal yeah. being alive for 25 years or so in retirement or being in heaven? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, I think I've got the better deal. Yeah. And, uh, so each of your children are reacting differently then and, and still processing um, I would I would say so. I think they've made uh, certain adjustments. I mean, this was spring of 2019. We had them all over to our house here uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I think that they've made all the initial adjustments. But of course, I haven't died yet. Yeah. So you've got another set of adjustments when mm-hmm. reality hits. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, I won't be around for those. Yeah. So, hmm. uh, yeah, thanks for that. That's very, uh, this part is, I think, the kind of thing we need to be hearing and is also the harder stuff to talk about, uh, you sure. know. Um, did, you, did you experience, sure. um, I'm really curious yeah. about this, any... One of your questions. Yeah, yes. Uh, go ahead. We, we broke up, but my, what I'm saying will still uh, come through, or I'll, I'll edit this if it's not clear. Did you go through some... Uh, Personally, any doubts, any uh, adjustments in your uh, theology, anything that that just you view differently, knowing that you've got something that's that's terminal, or has it been just straight out, man? What I've believed, yeah, it's true. It really makes a difference. Um, I would say probably in the doubts department, no, mm-hmm. but I will express um, a rather odd situation that I'm in. And that is, uh, to put a historical context on this, I was first prayed for at the Christian Missionary Alliance General Council when we broke up into small groups to anoint anoint and pray for sick people. Mm -hmm. And I had not broken uh, uh, to people uh, generally the fact that I had had cancer, but I, Mm. I shared it with this small group, which included a retired missionary and his wife from First Alliance in Tacoma. Mm-hmm. So I was anointed and prayed for there. And for the listeners who are not aware, the Christian and Missionary Alliance is big on healing. Mm-hmm. That is, we have an element in our statement of faith, an article that deals with divine healing. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, good alliance churches are going to have healing services from time to time and gather specifically for their elders to anoint people uh, to be healed of their sicknesses. So here I am, and I get uh, uh, anointed at general counsel. This is like um, May, June of 2019 in Orlando. And I was also anointed at our district conference in the fall of 2019. I was also anointed by my district executive committee and my licensing and ordaining council. So I've been prayed for and anointed, and I've had repeated prayers by people from our former church and people in our current district and all this kind of thing. And they're all praying for my healing. And so the odd situation I find myself in is that with all this anointing and praying, and all this supportive prayer week by week by people in our uh, local church plus elsewhere, I have not been healed. And uh, every arrow points to me facing death and the hereafter. Mm. And so I'm in an odd situation where on one hand, I'm very grateful for the supportive prayers of people who are looking for me to be healed miraculously. And on the other hand, um, I'm not seeing the results and I am at great peace having to do with the, the yeah. business of yeah. passing yeah. and entering into the presence of God. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's an awkward situation. It it is. Yeah. And, and the encouragement here for, for many can be that faith and, and Ronald Dunn in his book, when heaven is silent speaks a lot about this. Uh, It was about the, the book is essentially about the death of his own son to suicide. And uh, that faith is, is what we're given when things don't go our way. Uh, It's not always, Hey, you need to have enough faith so that God will respond to what you deeply long for. It's when he seems silent, when heaven is silent. It's that continuing trust and just that, that deep belief that God is sovereign and purposeful. Uh, that's faith. Uh, and that's, you know, you look at Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter. You know, read, read through of those. Most of those people didn't get what they wanted. Uh, but they're, the, the reason their names are listed there, I mean, it's the heritage of, of the nation of Israel, our, our heritage, there are great cloud of witnesses that we can look back. And so the, the, the general uh, ten, tendency in people's spiritual journey was did not get what, what they wanted from God, but, but loved them more deeply because of it. That's one of the things that's really beautiful to me about this kind of story. Yeah. Mitch, I'd like to read a text message that I received just this morning mm-hmm. from a close friend in uh, Tekoa who says, <clears throat> praying God's full glory to be revealed through your trials. The praises you sing during this time is releasing the captives bound in this life, looking for freedom, only Christ provides. And he references the singing uh, of Paul and Barnabas in jail in mm-hmm. Philippi, mm-hmm. Uh, in Philippi, and uh, and how the jail, of course, uh, broke open mm-hmm. during that period, and uh, and the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his family, and all yeah. those things. He then goes on and says, "It can only happen through those fully dependent on Him in this life to guide others to gr- to Christ." through the gift of suffering. Mm, mm. And yeah, I think that he's hit upon uh, something that Carol and I have, have observed in American Christianity routinely. And that is we generally, uh, we gag at the idea that suffering is actually a normal part of the Christian mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when it comes on us, we're deeply surprised and wonder if God exists. And the truth of the matter is that God wants to build in us divine character mm-hmm. and that suffering is one of those things that's part of the recipe. You and I talked about those scriptures uh, the other day. Um uh, first in Peter, do not be surprised when you right. face trials. And that just the idea of don't be surprised also implies it's going to come. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And then you quoted first Thessalonians four 13, that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Uh, we, we, we will grieve, but we do so. And that hope increases in, in suffering uh, best, doesn't it? Um, what, what is, um, where, how do you, how do you feel the church needs to, uh, particularly in the U.S., better prepare itself for uh, ministering to uh, people that that face terminal illness? Because I, I think often when you know when I pastored all the years that I pastored, and I still observe as people don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, your profound question demands uh, a, a little bit of complexity in, in responding. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, if we were to look at most evangelical churches, and I'm not trying to be pejorative of other churches, but just the ones I'm most familiar with, evangelical and Baptist, they do a very good job in the sense of bringing people to Christ, which brings with it eternal life. So, so far, so good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But in talking about death, and especially the kind of death that you just brought out, terminal illnesses, we reserve that for funerals. Hmm. We generally don't have a series of sermons on death or a series of Bible study 
uh, uh, topics that relate to death, we, we, we make the false assumption that between the funerals in our church and other things that pe people will pick up on this stuff. The difficulty with that is, as you know, and most people know, a funeral is a terrible time uh, for a teaching moment. Yeah. Because um, people are dealing with the shock and loss of this person they love. And, and that air is not easily cut through uh, with a knife. Um, and so, and so when, when a, a worship service is held, we, we actually want to just get through it. And uh, I would say that it's easier when we know that the person is a Christian, that he, he or she lives by faith and all the rest. And it's terrible when we have to do it for uh, a person who has been mm -hmm. out of any sort of communion with God and uh, has led a terrible life and that uh, their, their, uh, their funeral is a result of a tragic mistake and, mm -hmm. and these kind of things that pastors have to deal with routinely. Um, so we really need to use our preaching and teaching ministry to go beyond eternal life yeah, and, and just the mention of it and the assumption that the person is going to put all this together on their own is that when we preach on eternal life, we need to stop and say, well, why is that important? Hmm. Um, and, and what are we talking about here is that if you survey a group of Americans in a given room, you know, some of you are going to live to your nineties. Some of you are going to live to like you know, 70 in my case with a terminal illness. And some of you are going to die earlier than that, or your children will die earlier than that. And you'll still be alive is, is just to sensitize them at the very beginning of the discussion is that we can't take anything for granted and, and, and in the room, the person who says, no, that's not going to happen to me could very well be the one yeah. who is yeah. going to have to face it personally or face it in the life of, of one of their children, as you have. And that's where we need to get people's attention. Yeah, that's, that's very good, Scott. It's, uh, it's, it's preaching and teaching about it uh, and instructing the congregation. What about uh, modeling it? So what, what, what has community looked like for you? I know your situation is a little unique as a district superintendent. You might not have, you know, if, if, if you were pastoring a church, I think the, the response would, would be different than where you have been, you know, you were a district superintendent yeah. now retired. So uh, what, uh, what's, what's community look like? And then talk about the importance of community when, when this yeah. is going on. Well, uh, first I'll tell you a funny little story, or at least it's funny to me is that uh, the national office in Colorado Springs for the Christian and missionary Alliance, one of their benefits counselors called the secretary at our district office. And this was a few months after uh, my diagnosis had gotten up to the upper levels in Colorado Springs. And she said, uh, I'm giving you a call to uh, let you know how to handle the, uh, the when, when Scott gets time off in connection with his chemotherapy and all the rest of it, how you handle uh, the workday you know, how you account for his work days and all the rest of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and the secretary says to this woman in Colorado Springs, I don't think you understand what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. She said, yeah. he is at work every single day, oftentimes well before I get here. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he works a full day. He travels to all of our churches with his wife. And, and he has not, you know, missed a day of work and getting yeah. this yeah. therapy. And uh, so... That, that was music to my ears. And that is that while I'm going through this, I'm still ministering to other people. Mm -hmm. So, of course, a shift in that was made when I stepped down and went into retirement. Um, I have preached uh, several times at churches as far away as seven and a half hours from my house, and uh, which involved an overnight and all kinds of other stuff. So I've done some preaching. Uh, one of my important ministries right now is I'm the mentor to three different men in the district 
who are working toward ordination. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I can give them uh, an example of, of how you prepare for your own homegoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of it, what I would call the finish well business. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is that I'm, I'm still in communication. Um, I'm still uh, um, part of our uh, local church prayer ministry mm-hmm. for other people, you know, not for me not plugging in because I, I'm looking forward to them bringing me up as a subject on Wednesday night's prayer meeting, but to be part of a ministry to other people. And there, there are little things, Mitch. For example, I get people from all over the United States who call me. These are friends from former military locations or former church ministry who call me and say, Scott, I'm just checking on you. Well, my objective in these is to get beyond me giving them a quick uh, update on my health mm-hmm. and get mm-hmm. to the point of finding out what in the world is going on in their lives yeah. where I can have a ministry to them. Yeah. Um, w- without, without denying them their need to minister to you too. as Absolutely. Well, right? So it's, yeah. it's, it's having yeah. that balance. Yeah. yeah. And these are all loving friends, uh, and and so I appreciate their phone calls yeah, very very yeah, much, and I tell them yeah. that. Yeah, I feel I feel like we're we're really good at the the community knows what to do when there's been a death. You know, we it's usually a two to three day event. You know, where yeah. we bring food, we support. I think what we're not good at is the longer term, the longer illness, the uh, you know, the the months of being in hospice and. I, I know in the previous church I pastored, we we had a team set up and we would talk about and having had, you know, experience myself with with three members of my family having had cancer, I would share with them, you know, this is what encourages, this is what doesn't encourage. Um, sometimes just showing up and not saying much is the best thing. And but but definitely don't I, you know, you you're you've been in ministry, so you're even now I sense you're you're, you're, you're moved still by wanting to serve others. And, but a lot of people who have terminal illness are, are not uh, always able to, you know, continue what they're doing in terms That's of right. serving in that others. regard. I've been very yeah. fortunate. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, but hopefully this is still, this is an encouragement for anyone going through this that, uh, uh, Hey, finish well, you know, it, it might, you might do it out of weakness uh, but there's, there's just an opportunity to, because people are watching, you know, people are, are listening and, and it, it, when, when people encounter someone with terminal illness, it, it has a, the effect of, of putting things in perspective in our own lives, uh, sometimes briefly because we forget and we move on. But, uh, I love what you said earlier that this, this could be part of the rhythm of preaching, you know, a pastor do a series on this and, and even train people to, uh, to uh, know how to effectively minister to people who are going through this. Yeah. So, well, that's I, good. I can mention something else, Mitch, uh, and it has to do with preparation for my passing. And it, I don't think this should be discounted. Um, I spent uh, some time designing my own uh, memorial service mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and contacting the person who would deliver the eulogy, the person who's going to preach. Uh, the person who would oversee the entire service, uh, the person who would handle the the electronics and the PA system, and so forth. And when I got Carol involved, which was at the front end before Mm -hmm. I started contacting these people, her first reaction, of course, was tears. Yeah. That is, it's something that she really didn't want to face. I can understand that, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I was emphatic on was, Carol, the last thing you want to do the day after I pass away is for you to have to build a service from scratch. Yeah, yeah. You have to contact people on the phone and you have to figure out where this funeral is going to be. And you have to make all the, the funeral home arrangements and the burial site arrangements you do not want to have to deal with that, you know, plutonium in your backpack. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, and that's what I was emphatic on with her and the people that I was marshalling to do this thing is I did not want her to do anything other than interact with the people who were coming to the funeral and talking with her at the reception mm-hmm. and holding hands with her at the graveside service. I did not want her to have to go through some or organizational hoop jump uh, to make this thing happen. Yeah. And that, and that does more than just save them, you know, the trouble to have to do it. It, 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 it has also the impact of preparing them for it to uh, adapt to the reality that this is, this is going to happen. Yeah. We've had family members do that too. And it, uh, I remember when my, my son, we knew he had only a couple of weeks to live. I, it was surreal. I was me. I met with uh, Dave Harvey that, you know, at mm-hmm. McDonald's and we worked out the service and I yeah. thought this is weird. My son is still alive, but he's, we're planning his funeral. Uh, but then, again, this is the kind of thing we, we, we need to hear. And uh, some people might be uncomfortable with it. And I appreciate your openness. I mean, we, when I called you last week, I said, Scott, you know, how, how deep do you want to get into this? How personal you, you were like, no, no limits. So I, uh, I appreciate that. And, and, uh, you know, I think the most important thing is just how your, your trust in Jesus, uh, it's not making you, I mean, you're, you're kind of somber about it. it is, you know, facing the prospect of your family being left without you, I think is the hardest part for people. I, that think, are I think you're right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Personally, you're excited because you're going to see Jesus, but there's that piece that, must weigh on you at times of what it's going to be like for, for them. Um, yeah. So what, uh, what has this done in your understanding of the gospel? How, how, how much more meaningful is the gospel to you as you face this? That is a great question. There's a sense in which, and I, I don't want to be mistaken Mm -hmm. on this, but there's a sense in which, that's the point at which meaning actually arrives yeah. in the discussion yeah. of the gospel, is that it, it, this is when, you know, the, the shoe leather meets the street, Yeah, is when we're actually facing death. And it's not just this, this ethereal uh, concept uh, that, you know, after I reach, you know, 80 or 90 years old, I'm, I'm going to pass in the glory yeah. and all these kind of things is that uh, it, it is a much more real experience mm-hmm. because it's so close, you know, and it, and it means I've got to, to think in terms of all kinds of things. And one of those things uh, has to do with my interpersonal relationships. That is, um, who are the people that I need to, to get the relationship squared away or back mm-hmm. on track? Mm-hmm. Are there people out there that uh, um, I've offended? Mm. Are there people that um, that maybe have a wrong view of me that needs to be straightened out, or just the very simple business which I did a couple of weeks ago of spending time with each of my children when they came to visit here, mm-hmm. uh, just mm-hmm. to talk with each one of them and mm. tell them how much I love them, <laughs> tell them what I admire and respect about them. And tell them what my hope is for them as they as they uh, carry their adult lives into the future. Uh, uh, one of my children is uh, is uh, uh, forty uh, one years old, and one of them is thirty nine, mm-hmm. and the other one is uh, I think twenty seven right now. Mm-hmm. But so these are adults, and yeah. uh, but to sit down with each one of them and tell them. Uh, what I love about them and uh, to reflect something on my role in their upbringing um, and how much fun it was. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I said to all of my kids in the living room is um, I, I, I woke up in the middle of the night uh, thinking about raising my three kids and how Mm -hmm. much fun it was. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. said, I hope that you feel the same way with the, Mm -hmm. the things we did, the places we went to, uh, the funny little times we had together and either in the car or in the home or, or, uh, some overseas location. And, uh, so I, I guess, you know, the, the question is pay attention to your relationships yeah, yeah, um, and make sure that you 
leave people with encouraging words. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's always good to leave people with a blessing. Yeah. Cause that will, yeah. that will help them uh, later. Yeah. No yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's, uh, that's beautiful, Scott. Um, well, thank you. Thank you again for being so open with us. It's, uh, it's so, so good to hear your story and, uh, any, any further thoughts as we, as we wrap up here? There was a discussion that you and I had on the phone about the difference between creed and the hard reality of. Faith. Oh yes. Yeah. We, I did not ask. Uh, you that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, one of the dangers uh, in creedal churches, that is churches that repeat the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, uh, that is probably not the case among many evangelical churches with contemporary worship, but among the older uh, traditional uh, models, uh, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and, and uh, Catholics, and so forth, is that we repeat these very important words about Jesus Christ and about how he shall judge the quick and the dead and all the other things uh, in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And yet, um, it doesn't hit us. We repeat this stuff, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't really get in to us. And uh, when we're dealing uh, with the ine inevitability and the suffering, it's time to go back to those creeds. Wow. Wow. It's time to pull it off the shelf. And uh, an example would be uh, the first article of the Heidelberg Catechism. You know, what is your only hope in life and mm -hmm. death? You know, that, that I belong to my my loving savior. And I'm misquoting it here, but, uh, go back to those things. Yeah. Uh, because now they will have a richer and deeper meaning yeah. than they did before. Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, that's, I love that. I that's love how that. I wanted to end it. Yeah. Well, awesome. good. good. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. May the Lord, uh, be, uh, be near you and give you encouragement and courage and also, uh, for your family. And it was, it was really, again, I want to thank you deeply for being willing to do this today. Hey, glad to be part of it, Mitch. All right. Take care. Thank you for your questions and your own contributions to this important discussion. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Before You Quit podcast. If you have any comments or questions about anything we've talked about today or on other episodes on Before You Quit, you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us. Love to hear from you. So until next time, stay encouraged, be courageous, because serving Jesus is worth all that hard stuff that comes with it. And remember what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay encouraged. Mm -hmm.